Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. We're here tonight with David K. Johnston. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning award, a Pulitzer Prize award-winning author of For Beat Reporting in 2001 when he was working for the New York Times. He specializes in economics, finance, and tax issues and has been teaching at Syracuse University as a visiting lecturer, a distinguished visiting lecturer, who teaches tax property and regulatory law at Syracuse University College. Oh, of the ancient world. I didn't know that. Wow, that's interesting. And also works, he frequently appears on television. You'll see him on all of the cable networks. David, it's wonderful to have you back. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, I wanted to start, we'll get to the debt peonage and, uh, and the uh, neo-feudalism in a minute or two, but first I wanted to talk about a piece you just had up today about how it was that the IRS was investigating the people who were expressing political views in the Midwest. They just, liberal political views, they just didn't bother to mention it. And you were at that press conference, right? Yes, this is a pretty shocking thing. We now know that the IRS scandal was a completely manufactured scandal. Uh, Daryl Issa, a uh, Republican, a uh, very fierce opponent of anybody who's not a conservative Republican, asked the Inspector General, who is a former Rep- Republican political operative, he was on the staff of Bob Dole, among other things, to investigate whether the IRS determination unit in Cincinnati had been uh, going after Republican groups, a Tea Party, Lundex 912 promotion, um, liberty groups, things like that, and the inspector general wrote an audit and said, yes, indeed they are. But in the audit, he pointed out that there were 300 groups who applied for tax-exempt status, and only 96 of them were of this group. So Lois Lerner, the IRS executive who oversees exempt organizations, had a, a telephone conference call with reporters And I asked her at least twice back in May, well, is there anything in common about the majority, the 200-plus organizations that were not Tea Party-type groups? And she insisted they had nothing in common. Well, what that tells us is that Lois Lerner didn't do her homework because Republicans have now released, I mean, Democrats have now released documents showing the words blue, Democrat, Occupy, Progressive, Liberal were all uh, also included for extra scrutiny, as they should be, by the way, because you can't be tax-exempt if you're a political organization, and the IRS has been improperly approving political organizations. But the IRS here, I mean, it shot itself in the foot. It could have stopped this whole scandal in right in its tracks in May if they simply said, Excuse me, we looked at everybody who was political, left, right, you know, whatever. If you indicated in your application you were political, we put you in for extra scrutiny, and she didn't do it. Now, I called for Lois Lerner in my column for tax analysts back in, um, in the, I think on May 17th, for her to resign, and I've reiterated that today, and I've now pointed out she should be fired. And I, I point out one of the uh, people who says they were involved, I have no way of proving this, in trying to get her to resign after I called her for a resign, said that uh, what she demonstrated was that she had a better understanding of her employment rights under civil service, even though she's an executive, she's under civil service, that she had a better understanding of her employment rights than of her duties as the head of the exempt organizations unit. I think it is shameful that she's on the taxpayer's payroll, and they should just fire her and let her litigate it. I think that's a very good resolution. But the problem, of course, you know, it's a real problem because I actually don't think any of this stuff. I don't believe in nonprofits anyway, and it's exactly for reasons like this. It's impossible to draw a line that's fair, reasonable, and consistent across well, these different organizations. I don't think you said nonprofits involved at all in political stuff. Nonprofits do lots of good things. I mean, lots of universities are nonprofits, and just as a matter of disclosure, my wife uh, is the uh, chief executive of the largest foundation in western New York. That's why I live in Rochester, New York, which she built up from nothing to in this small city I live in, Rochester, New York, in just 20 years. She built it up by a quarter billion dollar increase in its endowment while giving away $300 million. And they've accomplished a lot of good. I mean, here in Rochester, New York, for example, we have the best preschool daycare in all of North America and western Europe. And I can document that to you. So not obviously a lot to do in the world, but they should not be allowed to be involved in political activity at all. Right. And that's and the code is really strangely written. It's very hard to regulate it. And but they, they certainly should be investigating everybody. And it turns out, well, in fact they were. 
Interesting. So, uh, Sherry, if you could paste in that um, link, it's up in our chat. Folks, I'm not in Second Life. I'm still in a low bandwidth situation, so I'm going to be audio only. But Sherry's going to be pasting in commentary as we go. So please do ask questions in comments and ask questions in chat. And um, just let me know what you want, want to hear about. Now, David, I want to take a well, second. Jay, Jay, you live in New York City. If America has the world's greatest Internet, it's Verizon and the cable companies and AT&T keep telling us, how could you possibly be in a narrow – oh, I'm sorry. I wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> Except I'm in New Jersey tonight. Okay, same thing. But, yeah, no, it's, it's incredible how bad our Internet connectivity is, and it's incredible how bad it is given that it was invented here. It's just, it's just the same thing you write about. In fact, why don't you summarize what you write about when you're talking about that issue, David, because it's a really important point. Well, the taxpayers invented the Internet. It was a, it, it was a defense project designed to allow scholars to be able to communicate with one another via computers over long distances and trade files and data and research work. And in 1994, of course, it became popularized when they invented browsers with the click and point and the visual stuff. Uh, so America started out as number one in the Internet. We're now, depending on which measure you want to use, somewhere in the 20s around the world behind such leading industrial and technological countries as um, Bulgaria and Moldova. And we pay the highest prices or the second or third highest prices in the world among modern countries for an internet that is crappy. If you go to South Korea, I was there a year ago, the internet costs one sixteenth what it costs here, and it's two hundred times faster. And it's everywhere. And oh, in the smallest town in Seoul, when I do national TV like CNN or MSNBC or PBS, I have to either fly to New York or go to the local PBS station and do it by satellite. If I lived in a little village in South Korea, I would have such a good Internet, I could put a studio in my home and do it live, even if I lived out in the countryside. It's amazing. Now, that helps that it's a small country, but it's also because they're dedicated to actually providing infrastructure to right. all the population. And they're not trying to prop up these enormously expensive monopolies that we have in America, like Verizon and AT&T, whose entire business model is to provide the least possible investment. I mean, they'll say they invest tens of billions of dollars. Well, they do. But their object is to invest the smallest possible amount and charge the highest possible price. <laughs> and what's astonishing about this is these laws were put in place while they are bipartisan, largely by the behest of Republicans who apparently never read their Adam Smith and don't understand that business and the market are two different things, and the number one thing business people always want is to escape the rigors of the competitive market. Right. My way of putting that is a free market economy requires intense regulation and constant scrutiny. Yeah, and, and the Germans actually have a system for that they call ordo-liberalism, in which their assumption is the market will work things out best, the people always gain the rules, so you have to have a system that constantly adjusts the rules to force people to be competitive. Right, and constantly look to see how they're trying to beat the system. And right. here, here we, uh, they are the system, which we'll get to, because that's really the foundation of what we're seeing in this um, hourglass economy that's, that's developing. But I wanted to just go off on a side tangent for just a minute about what espionage is, because I've been thinking about that all day. Yeah. I mean, I know what it was in 1917. It was troop movements. It was naval emplacements. It was plans for troop movements and naval emplacements. It was all kinds of things that had to do with being at war. Right. And I guess I understood what it was when I was reading about the Soviet Union, you know, and there were spy stories about penetrating and finding out where they're keeping their weapons that they might use in war against the United States and other assets they might use in war against the United States. But I don't understand how you can have espionage with your biggest trading partners. Uh, well, you can have espionage as biggest trading partners. I don't think you can apply the espionage statutes to journalists. A Fox News reporter has been gone after by the Justice Department, threatened with prosecution by the Obama administration. You may recall that Bill Keller, the editor of the New York Times and the publisher, Arthur Salisbury, were called to the White House you know, had a meeting. 2006, if I remember correctly. 2006. And they had a meeting with a number of people, but led by President Bush, in which they were told rather bluntly over some revelations the Times had published that they could be prosecuted and executed. And this is indicative of how um, the, under the national security state, we are seeing the government become more and more power unto itself. 
Now, I'm the president of investigative reporters and editors. There are 4,500 members of our organization. We just had our annual conference in San Antonio, and we gave two awards that people didn't come to get. One was a Hall of Shame award to Eric Holder, the Attorney General, for scooping up the telephone and uh, uh, email and heaven only knows what other records of more than 20 Associated Press reporters in an investigation in which they were trying to find a leak. And the FBI did over 550 interviews and couldn't find the leaker. And then secondly, of course, this Fox News reporter, whom the government has, uh, uh, in an effort, I think, to intimidate him, suggested... James Rosen, you mean? Yes, uh, Rosen, that they can... Uh, they might go after him for espionage. Now, today, Barbara Starr at CNN, who has been the Pentagon reporter there for a long time, is a very good reporter. I've known Barbara since the 70s. Barbara Starr has a piece that has national security leaks. It talks about techniques used by the U.S. government to track al-Qaeda. What is the difference between Barbara Starr, who, who is not going to be under any attack whatsoever, and Glenn Greenwald, the journalist and lawyer for The Guardian, who Peter King and others have called for to be prosecuted as a spy. Well, the difference is Barbara Starr got authorized leaks, and Glenn Greenwald reported unauthorized leaks. The government leaks every single day of the week, and what it wants is a system in which the government decides what to leak, and anybody who isn't part of the authorized system of leaking will be prosecuted to make sure they can do whatever they want to do without being accountable to the American people. Right, and it's the accountability that's really important because what happens is the New York Times, or in this case Barbara Starr, ends up certifying this information as accurate without attribution. That's correct. Yeah, she quoted it was, uh, she had two single sources of her piece was written, and it's possible it's the same source, but I think she had two different sources. But, you know, governments leak all the time confidential information whenever they want to. Now, when you see proceedings in a grand jury, you know, sometimes that stuff is leaked not by the prosecution, but by the defense, because they want to get it out and they want to blunt it. But leaks are just a normal part of business, and the traditional rule was that if the journalist didn't do anything, the journalist was the recipient of it, there was no question they were behaving properly. It's very clear that the Obama administration, which I have said in a number of forums for various reasons and have written, is worse than the George W. Bush administration on transparency and answering questions from the public. Well, they seem to be more committed to um, an imperial presidency than, than even Bush was. Yeah, well, I think the real underlying problem with both President Bush and President Obama I mean, they're very different men. George Bush was an unsophisticated man of no depth. Clearly, Barack Obama is a very smart, well-educated, sophisticated man, but neither of them have any management experience. George Bush's job as the head of the Texas Rangers was to glad-hand people and, and be the, the rainmaker, the salesman guy out front. He didn't run the team. And, and as I reported in my book, Free Lunch, he was – he, his deal, he got a $202 million subsidy. That's where his fortune came from. He got taxpayer, a tax increase funneled into his personal pocket, completely contrary to his public image. But he was so bad at it that he left $38 million of that $202 million or $34 million of it on the table. But Barack Obama, he never managed anything more than a secretary. I mean, compare this to uh, Lyndon Johnson. He managed the Senate. You want to talk about a management nightmare? How about the U.S. Senate? Well, he's arguably, I mean, maybe Rayburn, but he's arguably the most effective Senate leader in the uh, 20th century. Absolutely. Chris Rayburn was in the House. Uh, Dwight oh, good point. Thank you. <laughs> Dwight D. Eisenhower was, after all, the commander in charge of defeating the Nazis in Europe and had to put together, you know, he had to get de Gaulle and, and uh, Montgomery to get along. Can you imagine that as a nightmare trying to uh, go against the Nazis? He had a lot of management experience. He worked his way up uh, to be a general. Um, uh, Nixon had management experience. In the Navy, he was an officer, and he had had other duties along the way that gave him management experience. Um, but Barack Obama came into office with no management experience. And as somebody who founded a business, I've got 20 points unemployed. Well, I don't now because my sons have asked me to please retire yet. But we have 25 employees. I can tell you, it's not easy to manage and do well. 
and, and, and what we're seeing is that Obama, for all of his, uh, his good heart, his smarts, his ability to make good judgments, he's not doesn't have the management experience he needed to do this job. Well, it's a job that does require a fair amount of that because everybody's lying to you all the time. Yes, and you also have to learn how to take advice. I mean, you know, when Howell Reigns was made editor of the New York Times, I believe everything he said needed to happen at the New York Times was exactly right. Unfortunately, he had no capacity to, in, to undertake the change, and I went into his office a number of times on behalf of the reporting staff and was immediately cut off, which told me he had no capacity to understand how to manage. All he had were the ideas. Well, ideas don't get you anywhere. you got to have management skills. Well, and reporters is managing cats too, hurting cats as well. So, you know, they're all in their independent ways as well. So that's a very difficult management assignment. Yeah. But Rosenthal could do it. Uh, who? Abe Rosenthal. Oh yeah, I mean, for all the things wrong with Abe Rosenthal, one didn't like him. He knew how to manage, and and you know, he was just a true cold warrior. And but you know, Bill Clinton ran a state. He ran Attorney General's office. He had management experience. George H. W. Bush who was not a bad president, in my view, far from perfect, but not a bad guy. He, he had lots of management experience. Um, Ronald Reagan had limited management experience and mostly, you know, saw himself as a leader and farmed out the work to other people, which is one of the reasons you had all those scandals. Uh, one thing you haven't had under Obama is scandals. Well, Daryl Issa says this is the most scandal-ridden administration in American history. I, I can't find any indictments anywhere. <laughs> No, it's been remarkably clean, and I think that does reflect uh, his personal probity, frankly. But I, I assure you from all the, uh, uh, the radio I do with much more unfriendly audiences and speeches that there is a widely held belief that the Obama administration is thoroughly corrupt, that uh, it is uh, far beyond uh, anything we've ever seen before. And, of course, I just say to people who got indicted, oh, well, that's because they won't indict anybody. That's how crooked they are. <laughs> there, are there are state prosecutors who can indict left and right if they want to. There are inspectors general, et cetera. Uh, uh, and, of course, uh, I, I believe, frankly, Jay, that a, a lot of the people who one – of the, one of the easy tests of whether people are racist, and, of course, our Supreme Court majority apparently believes racism is in the past, is if you meet somebody who tells you that Barack Obama is stupid – um, I'll disagree with him on lots of issues all day long, but you can't reasonably call the man stupid, unless, of course, you're a racist. I, I don't see any way that you could. Did, did it strike you when you were reading the um, when you were reading about that decision when Robert said, "Well, look at this mayor of, of a small town in, in Alabama or Mississippi." He said, "Look, he's black, and it wouldn't be this way." And so everything's fixed without really thinking about the fact that maybe it's because of the Civil Rights Act that this guy is black. Well, well, not only that, but here's what's astonishing about that decision. And, of course, I, I believe Roberts, and I'm very critical of him, as you know, in my books, I think he's a radical who lied to Congress when he was going through his vetting procedure. Well, he, he did. You know, I, think, I, I think that's beyond dispute at this point that he right. did. And, and I don't – I think Roberts is – he really is. He's, a, he's an ideological radical, not a conservative. Um, how could he not have noticed the 12-hour lines and the 16-hour lines of people waiting to vote, the complaints by black people left and right and Hispanic people and college students that they were being denied the franchise, the introduction of bills in, in these very same states that are subject to uh, the Voting Rights Act to disenfranchise people, um, and, and the, the – viciousness this has led to. One of my grown children, who's 40 years old and has the map of Ireland on her face, was stopped, <laughs> was stopped while driving. And she was, took a car one family member had across the country to switch it with another one in the east coast to the west. And she's driving this 10-year-old Toyota shortly after they passed the Show Me Your Papers law. And Arizona Highway Patrolman stops her in the heat of the desert and says uh, to her, um, where are you coming from? And she says, well, Oregon to California on my way to New Jersey. And he goes, what part of Mexico are you from? And she says, I've never been to Mexico. And then she says to, he says to her, what kind of name is Johnston? Is that a Mexican name? <laughs> and, you know, he was just harassing her. Uh, nobody would, I, I don't think, anybody would reasonably think she was Hispanic. Um, but if, if the cops will do that to somebody like her, oh, by the way, maybe I should tell you that my daughter's a lesbian, which is why I think he may have been harassing her. 
the How could he tell that from her car? Did she have uh, like hemp or something on the outside? She, uh, you would, you would. My daughter has a very manly. This daughter, I have five daughters and three sons. This daughter has a very sort of manly appearance. Ah, I see. And and I think he's just a homophobe who was harassing her. But imagine what would have happened if if she had been, um, you know, brown skinned and driving across the state and get stopped for no, you know, pretext stop. Where are you from? What kind, you know? What part of Mexico are you from? I mean, what what a series of offensive questions, and nothing has changed, other than by the requirements of Congress and the federal courts in the South. I was in Texas uh, last week, and my wife and I noticed that the hotel we stayed at in Austin, Texas, that there was only the only black people on the staff were in the most menial positions. Something we have noticed again and again and again in Texas and North Carolina. Not so much in Florida, but Texas and North Carolina and Alabama and Mississippi. Um, and that uh, the people in the top jobs uh, in the hotel were all either white or um, Hispanic in name, perhaps, but in, you know, not, in their not in their demeanor, nothing would identify them that way. They, they would identify as Anglo in their, their physical appearance and their clothing. And so I, I'm astonished that Justice Roberts and the other justices seem to have no appreciation or understanding that there is a significant effort underway to deny the right to vote to people uh, who are not going to be Republicans. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe that's why they did it. Well, it's very hard to credibly do that. I, I haven't read the opinion, obviously. It's just out and... I, I don't know, but I don't see how they could justify that and whether or not. But I don't think I can't remember the I don't remember the solicitor general doing a great job arguing it either. Uh, that may well be, I, and I did not follow that part of it. Um, but I actually was surprised by this decision. I, I thought that um, um, the court would recognize, since we have so many of these efforts to disenfranchise people, that in fact. If you would say the opposite of what Justice Roberts said, things have not changed. Well, and it's interesting that, that they nonetheless did this. I mean, it was a really bad campaign if you wanted to get this reversed that the Republicans pulled in 2012. I mean, they wanted to win, obviously. Right. But um, they did a very – but it, I guess they knew they had the lock in the House. So. I want to turn to the topic we was planning to discuss, if you don't mind, and that is um, the growth in – Control. I don't want to say aristocratic control because that's not quite right. But the growth in control of the share of income by the very wealthy, and how we're increasingly seeing people, ordinary people, and by that I mean people in the lower three quintiles of earners, increasingly in a situation where they're just permanently in debt. Yeah. Can we can we talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. This is this is Jay. This is one of the most serious problems we have. You talk about it as debt peonage. I would talk about it as being wage slaves. But we we are creating a society that without the formal uh, uh, structure of slavery, and I don't mean uh, slavery in the old South fashion, I mean the ancient world, which is in the law of the ancient world is what I teach in the law school at Syracuse University, uh, that kind of slavery and indentured servitude where you sign yourself over to someone for a period of years to deal with a debt. That's effectively what we're doing in this country because we've changed the rules on lending. And we've done so because the Chicago school theorists, and as you know, I went to the Chicago school and I am uh, regarding myself as their leading apostate. (laughs) The government has no business interfering on behalf of people who want to borrow money uh, whatever interest rate they want to pay, that should be a private matter of their own. And, of course, embedded in that is the assumption that people will make cold-blooded, rational choices and not borrow money out of either a need or a misunderstanding of what they need, and they're not under terrible financial pressure to do so. And, you know, when you and I were young men, there weren't um, – uh, there were pawn shops, but there were not stores everywhere that had payday loans, car title loans, um, things like that, that put people into this permanent debt cycle that they can't ever escape from unless they file bankruptcy. And then what did, this, what did our legislature do? They made it very, very more difficult to get out of uh, debt through bankruptcy. Well, there were, there were small banks. I mean, there were savings and loans. There were banks you could go to. There were neighborhood banks. And um, you 
was easier to get a bank account, but also I think it was less important to have one in 1970 than it is now. I don't know. I'm not sure because fewer people have them. Right. You could operate unbanked in the 60s and 70s more more easily than you could today. And there were high-value lenders, and I don't mean you know mob guys, uh, some of whom I've written about. I mean there were places. Um, uh, household uh, finance. I remember household, household finance. Bank guys. Right. Uh, made a billionaire out of its owner, and they loaned money at like 30%. But there are ads on TV now for making loans at 100% interest. And every time I see this ad from Cash Call for this, they used to have Gary Coleman before he died pitching for them. I always thought about a um, loan shark I knew who, who told me about how he went to prison for charging two points a week. Well, simple interest, two points a week is 104% a year. And I'm sorry, now it's legal to do 99 <laughs> Well, the one that gets me is the people who have the advertisements I hear for people who want to pay you in advance for your um, your legal claim for a settlement of an accident or some other personal injury insurance. I mean, I'm I'm certain that they're not getting a good deal on those. No, they're not. And also the the ads, you know, you see, call JG. I want my I I, I want my money now. Just call JG Wentworth. Um, if you look at the discount, that is the, the effective interest rate they're really charging you. They're charging you. Uh, usurious rates of interest. You know, you get a, a slug of cash right now that the payment you're supposed to get for the rest of your life because you're, for example, disabled, uh, they will just be shredded. Uh, and, and yet there's, under the Chicago School theories that dominate in our country, there is no limitation of any consequence placed on these organizations. And you know who funds them? Wall Street. Wall Street is one step back funding these operations. Now, we've got a question about the Supreme Court discussion we had, which makes me a little nervous. Um, Albert says, why do you think that the Supreme Court is unbiased? Do you? I don't think it's unbiased. I, I, think I don't that, know where he got that. I, I think that uh, Antonin Scalia has now established himself quite theory as thoroughly not as an originalist. Even if you assume the theory of originalism, it's very clear that he's just a bigot. And, you know, he doesn't like gay people. He doesn't approve of gay people. He doesn't like people who hold different views than he does. He, the one area where he has seemed to stand fast is in areas where the state can be particularly abusive in criminal law. He is concerned about the state abusing people in certain areas of criminal law. Uh, I, in my book, Free Lunch, I think it's, yeah, it's in Free Lunch, I, I call John Roberts a, a dishonest uh, radical. And I call him dangerous. I think that he's uh, a, a, you know, unlike, you know, there are plenty of authentic conservatives in this country. Uh, I don't think he's one of them. And um, uh, like, what do you mean? Hold on. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, um, uh, Alan Simpson of Wyoming is a serious uh, uh, conservative. He's pugnacious and difficult, but he is, in fact. Uh, an ideologically consistent conservative. You, you may recall that during Bush v. Gore, he was on national TV on the uh, Ted Koppel show. I don't remember if Koppel was the host that night. And the host, whoever it was, said, well, this will go to the Supreme Court next. And immediately Simpson said, no, under our Constitution, Florida is the sole determinant of its electors. And that's exactly correct. And as opposed to people who the news media calls conservatives, who are not conservatives at all. They're radicals. They are anti-democratic. They are uh, they are in favor of whatever uh, business proposition will get them campaign contributions without any principled approach to it. And uh, uh, by the way, I think that Justice um, I'm sorry, his mind just from my head. The relatively new uh, male justice who said no. When Alito, you mean? Alito, thank you. I think that Alito likewise is is uh, not consistent. And Clarence Thomas, I, I don't believe, should have ever been appointed to the Supreme Court. And if Joe Biden and Ted Kennedy, instead of being good liberals, had simply said, sir, you're simply not qualified. They couldn't bring themselves to say that to a black nominee for the position. Uh, they'd simply been willing to speak that fundamental truth. We could have had a much better justice. If, and he could have been more conservative, I suppose, than Thomas, but at least we would have had somebody who is Competent. Right. Thomas has really proven to be a really, really bad justice. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't, I mean, you can, Scalia at least is funny. So I'm, 
I'm, I'm very troubled about our Supreme Court, and you know this is an issue that that I would fault progressives and and about that they don't seem to grasp how critical the power to appoint to the federal bench, which is a lifetime position, is. You can look at the numbers; they're they're readily available on the internet. Um, uh, President Clinton appointed Republicans and Democrats. President. Um, uh, George H.W. Bush appointed Republicans and Democrats. Ronald Reagan tilted pretty heavily towards Republicans, but there were some Democrats. Richard Nixon appointed people from both parties. Now we have a judiciary that is very, very right-wing, Chicago school, and contrary to the rights of the people. And recently the New York Times, I think it was the New York Times, had a big analysis of business cases before the court. And the court sides with big business again and again and again uh, in ways that should be very disturbing to people. Well, and I guess one of the things that bothers me is I don't think that that's a place where the administration's in strong disagreement with them. No. Unfortunately, we have a system right now in which the only people in either party who get to run for president are people who are approved of by Wall Street and the rest of big business. And, uh, you know, one of the signs of that is that um, how many uh, prosecutions have we had in the meltdown of the economy five years ago? Now, remember in the SNL crisis, which was 1,175th the size of the meltdown in 2008, less than 1% as big. We had 3,000 felony convictions, 1,000 of them of high-level insiders and big-name people like, like Keating went to prison for long periods of time. How many, how many prosecutions by the Obama administration? Zero. Zero. Well, they're bringing a civil proceeding against John Corzine on that money that, quote, disappeared. Well, they should. I mean, based on what's happened there, they should. But that was not systemic. And remember, Eric No, that's Holder, true. That wasn't systemic. That's a good point. Eric Holder made, a, made an absolutely astonishing remark the other day. It was about, I guess, a month ago now, where he said the re, one of the re, problems he was faced with is that these uh, too-big-to-fail banks were so critical to the economy that prosecuting them could destabilize the economy. Well, I'm sorry. That's not an appropriate standard. Really, you are so big and powerful, you can uh, violate the law and we don't prosecute you. You can, ex what, you can extend that then to murder? Hi, I run one of the biggest banks and I decided my mistress was a problem, so I just offed her. And now we're going to say, well, if we removed you by prosecuting you, for I mean, this is ridiculous road to go down. You go after people who committed wrong. And this is, and, and the other defense the Obama administration gives is that President Obama himself said, these things are subtle and complicated, and they may be morally wrong. They're not legally wrong. Fabricating documents, which we know was done. There are many, many witnesses. There are many public documents supporting this. Falsifying certifications, falsely signing names, fabricating affidavits. Those can be criminal offenses, and when done on a large scale, they can be conspiratorial criminal offenses, but they are absolutely criminal violations of the law, and the people involved should have gone to prison. And the way you get the people at the top is you go to little people, just like in drug deals, and you nail them and you give them deals to go after their boss, to go after their boss, to go after their boss, until you get to the, the uh, if not the CEO, you will certainly get the high-level managers. Now, a friend of mine who's a veteran federal prosecutor, a very respected prosecutor by everybody I know who knows him, including defense lawyers, uh, told me one day, he said, you know, you can't get these guys at the top because the cases are so complicated, the juries won't convict unless they're dumb enough to write an email. And he says, once we got an email, they're dead in the water. Well, several of the CEOs of the top companies are infamous for the fact that, uh, infamous is probably the wrong word, are known, you can reach profiles of them, that they don't use email. And that's the very reason. Everything is filtered through a staff. They'll tell the system, we'll send an email to so-and-so. And, of course, then they can always say, well, Mary or Bill misunderstood what I meant. Right. Yeah, it really struck me. That, that really struck me when I was reading the uh, defense of the the, uh, the defense administration offered for the NSA um, operations. They said that they stopped one terrorist event because they prevented somebody from sending $8,500 back to Yemen. And I just couldn't stop thinking about HSBC. Well, 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 Jay, let's stop and assume the correctness of that, okay? I mean, they should be looking for things like this. It only, the, the whole setup for 9-11 was less than $100,000. And you're talking about looking for the, 
you know, the broken tip of a needle in the haystack of money traveling around the world. So they found the $8,500 and they stopped something. I'm sorry, that was money going to Yemen. What do they need to listen in on your and my phone call for? Or even if they don't listen in on it, collect the, the metadata. You know, you call this number at this date. Now, their answer to that is the cheapest, quickest way to do pattern recognition, to find networks of people, is to scoop up all the information. Well, you know what? Let's just, let, I'll, I'll, frankly, I'll grant them that that may be the best way to do it and the world's changed and maybe that's what we have to do, but then sell it to the public. Don't lie about it. Don't go out and hide it, which makes everybody suspicious. Go to the public and say, the world's changed. This is what we need to do. We want you to know this. And it's not like Al-Qaeda doesn't know that. <laughs> why, why does Osama bin Laden operate with messengers? Because he intend good and well. If he had a cell phone, they'd find him and kill him a lot quicker than they did. Right. Turning back to debt peonage. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things is I was I was as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about David Graeber's book, uh, Debt the First Five Thousand Years. Have you read that? Oh yeah. And it's extraordinary after I read it to realize that this was a man denied tenure by Yale University because he wasn't a scholarly. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the a third of the book is is uh, references actually. It, 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 anybody who's listening, if you want to read it, it's it is reasonably well-written. It's not a novel, but it's also not turgid. It's readable. Uh, you want to read something that will really give you a, an understanding of how the world got to where it is today when it comes to these issues of debt. Uh, Graeber's book, uh, The First 5,000 Years of Debt, is a terrific, terrific job. David? Yeah. Okay, I thought I lost you. Um, no. the thing, the thing, one of the things that recurs, though, is the idea of a jubilee year. The idea that if you don't every once in a while forgive debt to the peasants to because of course that's what the world mostly was um, in domesticated agricultural environments it was um, a hierarchy of extreme, taught by extremely rich people treating people at the bottom as serfs or slaves or worse and the way that worked is kind of like the way company towns worked in the uh, time of of uh, coal mining and uh, and and, tra and, and railroad building here in the United States, right? That's the closest we have to it. Well, yes. In, 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 in the Old Testament, there is this concept of jubilee. That every 50th year, all the debts were to be forgiven. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that this was honored in the breach, not in the practice so much, but there was this principle. And it's the same principle that goes, for example, to gleaning. It was considered a very serious sin if you had an orchard or a field to completely strip the field. You were supposed to leave some of the fruit and some of the, the emer wheat or whatever product you had for the poor to come and gather for themselves uh, from the leavings. Um, and one of the reasons this has a bad name is something that happened in ancient Greece. Um, at the end of the period we call the tyranny, when Draco is in Draconian, put forth these laws, the punishment for every crime, you know, mass murder, steal an apple, the punishment is death. Uh, when he was succeeded by Solon, um, Solon had a debt forgiveness. And the Greeks' uh, record indicates that some people who knew that Solon was going to have everybody's debts forgiven, uh, that some crafty people went out and borrowed money, knowing they wouldn't have to pay it back. Now, the, the truth of that is a little bit in dispute as to how big it was. So clearly, some of it went on. But it's what's given this bad taste to the idea of debt forgiveness. But bankruptcy is not a modern idea. In Hammurabi's code, which is almost 4,000 years old, if you borrowed money and could not pay it back, depending on the circumstances of the borrowing, either you personally or you, and this would be a man, your wives, your concubines, and your children could be put into debt and the debt slavery, but for no more than three years. So effectively, Hammurabi's code put a limit on borrowing. Don't lend anybody more money than you can get back and labor from them. And remember, slaves aren't exactly notorious for being terribly hardworking uh, in three years. And then the debt was forgiven, and you had to be set free. Contrast that to somebody graduating from a uh, private university in the United States right now. Well, the average graduate of a public college in America graduates owing something like $35,000 in debt. And, and many of those loans, depending on what year you graduated, are at 6 7 8% interest. 
Uh, we're loaning money to the too big to fail banks at three quarters of a percent on an overnight basis for as little as a quarter of a percent. Think about a quarter of a percent for a year. And so lending makes it sound like we have some kind of choice in how much they take. <laughs> no, it's set by the government, the borrowing rates. And, and my point, only point is, why would we loan to banks at a tiny fraction of what we charge students? Now, when you and I went to college, in most parts of America, public colleges were free. Um, I paid, uh, I'm 64 years old. When I went to college in the 60s and 70s, mostly in California, I paid almost nothing. Uh, there were some little fees here and there, and that was it. Tuition was free, and we've changed it. We've turned college into a lending business. And for the lenders, here's what's astonishing about it. They are guaranteed repayment. The only way you, if you borrow money to go to school, can get out of it is you can die broke, in which case there's nothing to collect. You have no family, nothing. You're single, you die broke, they can't get the money. Secondly, you pay it back in full. Thirdly, you persuade the lender that you are 100% permanently disabled. And I've talked to people who are, you know, quadriplegics who had to fight, and, and especially paraplegics who've had to fight to be declared for this purpose um, totally disabled. That's, of course, worse than having a mortgage. But Duncan Black says it's like you graduate from college with a mortgage and no house. That's what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. And there are plenty of Americans out there whose hair is going gray who are in debt for student loans. And one of the worst parts of this is, so you graduate from college, you have six months to have to start paying. What if you graduated in the last five years when there are no jobs? You don't get a job. What if you're the kid who graduated from college, is walking down the street to the job interview, and a taxi cab jumps up onto the curb and hits you, and you're not totally disabled, but you can't work for a while? Guess what? You get to the, you go straight to the penalty interest rate, and the government guarantees this money to the lender at the end of the day. This is outrageous. And it's public policy. It is. Uh, you know. I have a, um, an anthology on inequality coming out in the fall called Divided, the, the Perils of Our Growing Inequality. And the opening line of the book is, inequality is a choice. Whether we recognize it or not, by the people we elected to office and the people they in turn appointed to regulatory agencies and as judges, we have chosen inequality. We can make another choice. We've also chosen, and that's my point, is accelerating inequality. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the people, the reason that we had 90% um, in, in marginal rates in 1958 wasn't to get revenue. It was to prevent the accumulation of wealth. Yes, it was. Well, it, I don't, it didn't do terribly well so much the accumulation of wealth is we effectively had a maximum spendable income. Uh, with a 90% tax rate under a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and 91% and is probably, I think, clearly excessive. But the system we have now has led to all these gains at the top. And, and let me give you my favorite little example of this. Incomes have been falling to the bottom 90%. Wages have been flat and total incomes have been falling. And that's before tax. That's right. In 2011, based on tax returns, the average income of the bottom 90% of Americans, which is a little over $30,000, fell back to the level of 1966 when we called China Red, Mustangs were brand new, and Lyndon Johnson was the president. The, the difference was in today's dollars was $59. So think of that $59 after 45 years as one inch, okay? The line for the top 10% is 110 feet. For the top 1%, it's 884 feet. And for the top 1% of the top 1%, that's the group Mitt Romney is near the bottom of. I mean, among the very wealthy, Mitt Romney's a tiger. The top 1% of the top 1% line is just short of five miles. So it's one inch for most of us to five miles for the super. It's their incomes went up 18.4 million dollars a year. And on top of that group are this super, super wealthy group who legally do not have to pay taxes except on incidental income. And the best example of that is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett in some years has had an income 
in terms of, and not as measured by the tax system, but as economic gains, in the tens of billions of dollars. And the only income he has that I call incidental income is he is invested in the company that is uh, taken over and everybody's paid out in cash, and he's forced to, to report some income. He had $64 million of income one year and paid a tax of 17% on it. Um, $64 million represents less than one one-thousandth of his known wealth, and I suspect it's less than one two-thousandth of it. Uh, the known wealth is Berkshire Hathaway. Um, there, the people at the very, very top, the hedge fund managers, the private equity managers, when um, Mitt Romney ran uh, Bain Capital, um, and the, the super elite, they just borrow against their assets. If you had $10 billion, Jay, you wouldn't pay any taxes. You have a portfolio of, of things that are non-dividend-bearing stocks and uh, uh, tax-free municipal bonds and, and maybe some real estate with losses. You can use those when you do have income. And you would borrow. You'd go to your bank and say, oh, I need $20 million this year. They loan it to you for 2%. That's $400,000 interest. And you'd pay no tax. If you sold enough stock to have $20 million, you would have to sell about $25 million of the stock. So why would you pay $5 million to the government when you can pay nothing? Right. And this is happening in an environment where we've had extraordinary increases in productivity by the workforce. I mean, extraordinary increases. I mean, unprecedentedly high increases in productivity. People are, you know, the number of people required to make an automobile has dropped by, uh, you tell me, in the order of 90%. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the way to think about that and what's going to happen in the future. Uh, in the year 1700, over 90% of Americans were tied to the farm. By the year, 18, by the year 1900, it was about 37%. By the year 2000, it was about two and a half. It's now about two. Now, think of, that's because we're getting more and more efficient with that. Now, think about that in other terms. If more than half of the stocks and other financial capital are owned by the top half of 1%, which they are when you measure property, certainly the top 1%, what happens when we have more and more work being performed not by people, but the labor is done by capital? So you get a job hauling a sack of wheat on your back from one place to another. You save your money, you buy a donkey. Now you can carry more wheat. Now you buy a cart. Now you buy a truck. Now you build a short-haul railroad. You can run as a one-person operation. More and more wealth comes to you, but more and more of the work is done by capital. And eventually, you get to the stage where there's a handful of highly technical workers, and you, Captain Picard, walk up to the machine and say, gee, you're all very hot, and it produces for you what you need. We're even going to be able to eliminate maids to make up beds in hotel rooms. There's a, a video you can see on the Internet of a, of a hotel that has a thing that makes the bed up without a maid. What happens in the future if we don't have a policy to catch up with this? And a handful of people are ungodly rich, and there's no work. Well, and the, the problem is that the political system and, and the cultural system is pocket change to them. That's right. And also, the, you know, a very big error we've made in our society is when you and I were growing up, we were taught the American dream meant that you had a good life. You lived a good life. If you wanted to get married and you had a family, you married well to someone who was going to care about you, and you bought a home and you had a car that started reliably. Now we're told, And you stroke to be George Romney. Yes, right. But now we're told that the good life is you own your own personal 747, and your your character doesn't matter. It's how many commas after your name. You know, two to be a millionaire, three to be a billionaire. And that's Mitt Romney. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the the spectacle of that man basically jumping gleefully up and down and saying, "I'm rich! I'm rich! I made myself rich!" was just utterly appalling. Uh, and, and right down to his, you know, ten thousand dollar bet to Rick Perry. He, 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 I mean, that, that's how nouveau riche and how tasteless. He should have said, I'll bet you a dollar. Or, well, there's any number of things he could have done. Right. <laughs> and that's who, but, but that, those people are, can, are making it impossible for us to, uh, making it impossible for, I'm, I'm really feeling bad for kids. I never thought I'd feel bad for 25-year-olds, but they really are being given, they're being asked to work for free. Yeah. And, and, and lining up for the opportunity. Right. Actually, a, um, a nationally known journalist who's 44 called me to ask for some help on something the other day. And 
And all of a sudden, he said, listen, before I get off, i got to say something. I said, what that, what's that? He said, you're a really lucky son of a bitch. And I said to him, why? Because uh, uh, I'm not nearly as good-looking, tall, athletic uh, as you are. He goes, no, because you're 20 years older than me. You know, you lived through this golden age when newspapers had lots of money and you could go out and do all these stories. He says, I'm 44, I got three kids and a wife, and I got 20 years of just hell ahead of me trying to make a living doing what I what we want to do. And I thought, yeah, that's a awful, awful circumstance. And if you were 20 years younger than him, 24, it's really very tough, very tough. Uh, literally, you're expected to work for free. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guest hosted for our local public radio station in Rochester because the regular host got sick, and so on short news, they wanted me. They didn't have any money for um, a producer, and I said, well, I can't do the show without a producer. you got to go get lineup guests and all of that. So I hired the college grad on my own pocket. It turned out she had worked the station for an entire year without being paid. Now, that's against the law. I'm sorry. That's against the law. It, it is, and it is going on all over the country. Big companies, left and right, are violating the law. But, you know, let me tell you what I'm going to force, Jay. We had more Labor Department inspectors in 1940 than we do in 2013 because, haven't you heard? Government regulation is totally interfering with business and destroying profitability and damaging the American economy. How did you not hear this, Jay? <laughs> well, i got to tell you that the Chicago people were wrong about this rational human being thing, too. Oh, yes. And, and Dan Ariely, among others, has been right in the forefront of bit by bit showing this. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show I regard myself as the, uh, the leading apostate of the Chicago school. But if, if Judge Richard Posner writes one more book like his last one, which starts walking away from it, I'm going to have to give up that claim. Well, oh, that's true. That's true. He's starting to back off. For a while, though, he's writing the same book over and over again. Yeah, yeah. But he's clearly he's he's beginning to recognize. And when I went to the Chicago School, which is 40 years ago, right now, and I went there, you know, young and and saying, uh, oh, these people have figured out all the economic stuff. I just got to go there and absorb it and go write great journalism based on what I learned. And by the time I left, it was like. Hey, you know what, folks? I now understand why they call an ivory tower. All of this stuff is elegant on paper, but at that point, I'd been a reporter for seven or eight years, and it was, you know, in the real world, this is not how things work. People don't just make choices based on economic reasons. They make them for, you know, emotional reasons, for stupid reasons, because of pressures bearing on them left and right. Uh, the idea that we're all these purely rational people who accurately calculate what's in our best economic interest, what nonsense. Well, in fact, we've proven that, too, because people do take into account justice, for instance, when making decisions in experiments, behavioral economics experiments, right? Right. We've done a lot. And we have also now know that animals, at least the primates, do the same thing. They recognize, uh, clearly animals recognize, primates recognize this notion of fairness. Vampire bats do too. They remember who shared and who didn't. That's right. So it, it's it's not anything new. And the idea of justice is an important one that is wired pretty deeply in us. And the idea that we behave cool like rational, hum, rational men, the that that assumption's proven clearly to be false. Likewise. Likewise, as you said earlier, the idea of the theory of the firm is that people compete fairly in open exchange. No, they do their best to extract rents. That's right. Yeah, that, that, and that's what a lot of this is, is rent-seeking. I, uh, when, I, uh, when I want to take a little break, sometimes I uh, Google for things uh, you know, that are random, and I decided to look at some Milton Friedman uh, little videos one day. <laughs> it was just astonishing because Friedman began attacking gender pay equality. And it isn't that he attacked it. I mean, I can make an argument. I don't agree with it, but I, you can construct a logical argument about paying women less for certain things. It doesn't mean it's right. But you construct them with what his argument was crazy. What he said was um, the, the reason they had apartheid in South Africa was labor union demands for economic, uh, for gender pay equality. Okay. Yeah. Excuse me? It was run by a bunch of racists who said the Bible told them the Bantu was inferior and was the white man's duty to rule over him, and they claimed God gave them this authority. It had nothing to do with unions and gender pay equity. And it's led me to start looking at other things Milton Friedman said. And you know what? He said a lot of really crazy things. He did indeed. 
He we all we all say stupid things, dumb things. I mean, Andrew Ross Sarkin the other day, you know, put his foot in his mouth about Glenn Greenwald on TV and had the you know owned up to it later in the day and said that was awful. I shouldn't have said it. I've said stupid things and walked them back. But this stuff that 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 is said by uh, Milton Friedman that's all over. This isn't like a slip of the tongue or a momentary. Oh, I didn't think that through. These were like planned speeches yeah, and. Whatever. And comments that I can't find any evidence he ever walked back. Apartheid came from unions and from women wanting equal pay. That's just completely bozo. It happens that the house I'm staying in, the head of a household, uh, has uh, wrote his dissertation under Friedman, so I'll check with him tonight. Um, we get a question from the audience, which I think is really an important one. Elsa wants to know, and she puts it in a way that I wouldn't, but I think it's worth talking about. Uh, does do you think that this will continue? That the uh, pattern of you know increasing debt and increasing inequality and the you know continued isolation of the extremely rich will continue, or will there be an eventual reset where we end up eating the rich, aka the Soviet Union, the Tsarist elite in Russia, etc.? We've had we've actually had this conversation offline. Um, yeah. So well, what? Also, that, also that, thank you. That's a good question. Uh, understand something. The reason that the super rich are getting richer and richer and pulling away from the rest of us, even at the, the 99%, if you're at the 99th percentile point, you're falling, okay, and, and you're falling behind. The gains are going to the top half, one-tenth, and one-one-hundredth of one percent. And this will continue because the government rules are what are causing it. So this will change when one of two things happen, and I hope it's the first one. We elect a different Congress and state legislatures who put in place rules that stop the rent-seeking and are fair. The distribution of income and wealth is not nature. It is set by public policy. If we don't get that, yeah, we're going to end up with people out there with pitchforks and a violent revolution. And if we have a violent revolution in this country, Pol Pot will be reduced to an asterisk in history. It'll be the most awful thing the world has ever seen in terms of person-on-person of -person violence. And if you've read Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, you know, this can happen very quickly. We can think we're just fine and two days later discover that we're in the middle of a civil war. We've we got to fix this. And you got to vote. you got to get active. You've got to tell neighbors it's the government rules that are doing this. And it's worth noting that it's not inherent to this technological um, environment because you look at Northern Europe, for instance, and well, it, it's not that way. It, I've done a couple of columns for nationalmemo.com recently, and one of them was a study that Ben Ariely and some others did about the claim that it's um, education and technology that are causing the explosion of incomes. Well, okay. They said, let's test that idea. And they plot out the changes. And what they found is, you know, the Japanese and the Canadians and the Italians and the Germans, they have access to the same global markets and the same technology. The only two countries that are in the, among the 34 modern economies of the world where the super rich are taking off are the U.S. and the U.K. And what do they have in common? Huge tax cuts at the top. That's what they have in common. And you can see it in the chart. And, and heavily subsidized finance sectors, finance sectors that don't serve as uh, that, that don't serve as friction reducing, but in service friction creating. That's right, and, and which sell useless products, but that generate big fees and increase risk. And then the second column I did for the National Memo was about labor's declining share. Think about at the end of the year, the economy has produced a gain if it's an up year of X. How much of that went to labor and how much went to capital? Well, labor share is just falling in the U.S. And then Bruce Bartlett, the turncoat conservative, he did one a couple days later where he looked at the global numbers, and they don't go back as far, but the global numbers show that labor share is falling. And what that means is a greater and greater share of economic output is going to capital, which is very narrowly held. Only 10,000 Americans that a third of all capital gains in this country. There are 314 million people in this country. Even if you think they're all married couples, then it's 20,000 out of 314 million get, all, get a third of all capital gains. Right. And again, this is policy. These are policy decisions that are made. government policy. This is we chose. We chose to elect Ron. If, if you go back and look at what Ronald Reagan and the people around him were saying when he was running for president in 1980, 
they've actually done what they said they were going to do. They said they were going to allow people at the top to make much bigger incomes, and it would benefit all of us. The Democrats came up with trickle-down as a way to, to denigrate it. But they, they said that we are restraining these people at the top, and they're, we now call them the job creators. And they've done what they said. And I have to tell you, I think that if Ronald Reagan were brought back today, he would be appalled. Remember that when, when Citizens for Tax Justice showed in the early 80s that there were 100 of the 500 Fortune 500 companies were not paying any income tax, Reagan threw a fit, yelled at people, said this has to stop, and they got to pay their taxes. And I'm absolutely certain that if Reagan came back today, first of all, the Republicans would treat him as a, a liberal and reject him, but he would be appalled at what has been done in his name. I, I, have, to, I have to put in a plug for a book that everybody should read, Tear Down This Myth by, yeah. um, by Will Bunch. It really demonstrates the difference between the real Ronald Reagan and the fantasy figure that, that drives the Republican Party right now. So do read that book. It, 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 that, Will Bunch is a terrific... Uh, uh, um, uh, observer, he uh, he goes under the name Attitude, A T T Y O O D, and that is a terrific book. Tear down this myth uh, to get at exactly that point. I mean, we we have to recognize how much things have changed. The two important numbers I believe to understand America are 37 and 1980. 37 is the median age of Americans which means that half of all Americans have been born since 1970, uh, what is it, 76? Um, uh, that sounds about right, yeah. They, therefore, they know nothing but Reaganism. Obama is a is Reaganite light, but he's still a Reaganite. Uh, they've known nothing but this. They have no idea the prosperity this country had, the growth that was going on under our former policies. They have... Uh, um, no idea of, of the fight the biblicals went on either, but that the, and 1981 is the year that Ronald Reagan was elected. So if you understand those two numbers, what, we, what we've created is a society that doesn't have the historical memory. And you know who proves that point is Grover Norquist, who says that people who agree with him should be clapping and applauding because every year two million more people from what he thinks of as the evil generation are dying off. That is, people who know about the New Deal, who know about um, the new frontier under Kennedy. The tremendous success of, of, of Keynesian liberalism in the post-war era. Exactly right. And, and making people think that there is no other way because they don't, they don't understand that when 37% of private sector workers belong to unions, 80% of workers were better paid. And by the way, that's market economics. That's Adam Smith. If you don't believe in unions, you don't believe in market economics. And anybody listening who doesn't understand that, just go look up Adam Smith. And right. You know, no, but he says he makes a very clear point. If, if capital owners get to bargain collectively, so do labor owners. Well, he also makes the point that you can't differentiate. You have, people should be paid for the work of a team. Uh, that it, it's the team that produces. Now, you know, you can show sometimes that an individual, a salesperson, has brought in extra money, you should compensate them. But when you're producing widgets, every single person in the production line is important for that. And right. you have to pay the team, not the individual. That's not how we do it. And when we look at the managers at the top, you know, executive pay keeps growing and growing and growing. Until recently, the stock market was way down. If you put a dollar in the market in the peak in 2000, by uh, the time my last um, book, The Fine Print, came out a little over a year ago, you would have had $0.67 cent plus, even if you reinvested all the dividends once you adjust for inflation. But executive pay had more than doubled. So executives are not being paid in accord with their output as measured by the value of the of company stock. No, and they haven't been for a very long time. That's right. I've got requests from the audience to get a couple of these charts produced. Could you draw me, you know, if you have five minutes after we're done, could you draw oh, me yeah. some links? And I'll put them up on the blog that I, the blog post I put up about this Absolutely. discussion. And I'd be thrilled to have people uh, go look at these, uh, especially the last two at National Memo. I write columns now for the National Memo when I feel like it's usually once, almost once a week. For the Columbia Journalism Review, I do two or three a month critiquing the press coverage of taxes and public finance. And then for tax analysts, um, I have a blog up today about how the uh, the IRS, as we talked in the beginning, could have stopped this whole scandal if the uh, executive in charge, Lois Lerner, had simply done her homework. Uh, um, because I asked the right question a month ago. She didn't, six weeks ago, she just didn't give the answer. 
All right, great. And you can find that at virtuallyspeaking.us. That'll be the top post tomorrow, and I'll have the uh, I have that up now, but we'll add some we'll add these links tonight, and I'll have that up for you tomorrow. David, thank you for joining us. It's always a charming and pleasure. It's always a charming pleasure to talk to you. I know we never stick to any of our topics, but you know it's more fun not not doing that. I appreciate it very much. And do next time you're in the city, drop me a note because we can. Uh, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I'll be glad to do that. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Thank you, folks, for joining us, David K. Johnson. Remember, the three books are um, at the website, virtuallyspeaking.us. The fine print is the most recent, but it's a documentation of the failure of government to serve the citizenry, and, of course, that's what the government's supposed to be doing, I thought, anyway. David, any last comments? No, thank you. Have a good evening. Good night. Mm -hmm.